Talking history. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're looking at the rise and fall of Adolf Hitler and we'll be finding out why it all went so wrong so spectacularly. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com and we'd love to hear from you. Last week, we looked at the history of the Tudors and we explored why the most notorious of all the English dynasties continues to exert such a hold on the popular imagination. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud, our website, newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. In tonight's show, as part of our series on the history of of the totalitarian dictators, we're looking at the rise and fall of Adolf Hitler and we'll be finding out why he lost the Second World War so spectacularly. We'll also be investigating why the Holocaust happened and the efforts made after the war to bring those responsible to justice and we'll find out how Hitler benefited from the mutual distrust of the Allied powers. And to help me discuss these areas and more, I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. Professor Frank McDonough is an internationally renowned expert on the Third Reich and was Professor of international history at Liverpool John Moores University until his retirement and his books include the acclaimed two volumes The Hitler Years as well as The Gestapo The Myth and Reality of Hitler's Secret Police and I'm also joined by Roger Howard who's an author journalist and analyst who writes on international relations and intelligence issues and his new book Spying on the Reich, The Cold War Against Hitler, has just been published by Oxford University Press. Well, you're both very welcome. And later in the show, I'll be talking to Professor Devin Pendus, Professor of History at Boston College, an expert on modern German history. He's the author of Democracy, Nazi Trials and Transitional Justice in Germany. And Frank, I might begin with you on a broad question about whether Hitler, there was really nothing to him when you dig down, that it was all built on sand, it was all, it was built on military expansion, a war that was going to be inevitable, and therefore the defeat and destruction of Nazi Germany was inevitable as well. Oh yes, there's no doubt about that. I mean, Germany was a middle-ranking power. You know, economically, it wasn't in the same league as America. And America was not going to let Germany rule the world order through, you know, Uh, flagrant aggression. Plus, the likelihood was that Hitler's ideology, which aimed actually to gain what he called Lebensraum, living space, at the expense of the Soviet Union, was going to bring the Soviet Union into the war, even though he had a perfectly functioning pact with Stalin. He was always going to break that. That was kind of in his ideological DNA. And uh, it was inevitable as well that Britain, the, the major imperial power, would also get involved. Now, if you pit Germany with its economic potential and war potential against America with its untapped potential, and it was clear, Roosevelt was making it clear from the late 30s that he was not going to let Hitler rule the world. I mean, he even said to Churchill when he met him in 1941, 
if if the Soviet Union is defeated, you can be sure we will enter the war. So given those two coalitions, Hitler with his terrible partner, Mussolini, probably the most useless strategic partner anyone could have, uh, and Japan, who he actually had no real direct uh, conversations with, you know, for example, what use is an ally when they don't tell you they're going to bomb Pearl Harbor? Whereas the allies, Stalin, Roosevelt, Churchill, they met up to plan out the D-Day landing. And really, once those three powers are engaged against Hitler, he doesn't last more than, you know, eight from 18 months later, you know, Hitler's heading for defeat. We are told, sir, that Herr Hitler has a plan for invading the British Isles. This has often been thought of before. When Napoleon laid Boulogne for a year with his flat bottom boats and his grand army, he was told by someone there are bitter weeds in England. There are certainly a great many more of them since the British Expeditionary Force returned. Sir, I have myself full confidence that if all do their duty, if nothing is neglected, and if the best arrangements are made, as they are being made, we shall prove ourselves once more able to defend our island home, to ride out the storm of war, and to outlive the menace of tyranny, if necessary for years, if necessary alone. Frank, growing up, I never really understood how Hitler could have come to power and how he could have exerted such a, a magnetic hold on the German people and indoctrinate them so so powerfully. But actually, when you see what's happening in the world in recent years, and we don't need to go into modern day examples, but you kind of see how the truth gets skewered and distorted and people are convinced to believe certain things and they get so wound up by it that you can kind of understand, maybe looking back at the 1930s, how people could have been swayed over by by Hitler and the Nazi message? Oh, yes. I mean, I think the Nazi message only reached about, at its maximum, it reached about 37% of the German electorate. Um, Hindenburg could have kept Hitler out of power had he wished. The real problem was that Germany didn't really come to terms with the defeat in the First World War. And there was no functioning democracy, really. I mean, the German democratic system was pretty chaotic. You know, a range of of political parties, all with narrow sectional interests. Some people have said, you know, if Germany had had a conservative party, like the British Conservative Party, then Hitler probably wouldn't have needed to come to power. But whereas the British Conservative Party has been pragmatic and changed, the German version of the uh, Conservative Party, the DNVP, was extremely right-wing. It didn't support the system. It didn't support democracy. It only appeared in governments, you know, probably for two years, over the 19 years. And you've got to look at, people always talk about, you know, it was the economy that brought Hitler to power. No, it wasn't. Two greater factors were the political instability of the Weimar Republic. There were 19 different governments in Weimar Germany. 
between 1919 and 1932. 19 different governments, constant instability, unknown people at the head of these governments who never really gained international recognition. The only politician in Weimar Germany who was known internationally was not Hitler. He was not known at all. It was Gustav Stresemann, the, the uh, foreign minister. So it was a breakdown of the political system that encouraged Hindenburg to suspend the constitution using Article 48 of that constitution. So here was a constitution created as a democratic constitution that contained an element that could destroy it. Hitler became, if you like, the person who the right, small group, by the way, Hindenburg and a few others, General Franz Schleicher, um, Franz von Papen, they decided that they would rule through this Article 48. So German democracy, and they had three uh, chancellors ruling this way, Brüning, then von Papen, then von Schleicher. So really Germany was you know, badly led. Uh, Germans never really accepted the... Uh, the defeat in the war, and they never really accepted democracy. And that went across the board. And Frank, how significant was the Reichstag fire? Because that enabled uh, that decree to come into force using Article 48 to, to take these emergency powers. If the fire hadn't taken place, would would Hitler have been struggling to to do well in that March election or do well enough to get an overall majority? Or uh, was there going to be some, you know, some manipulation in any case? I think the Reichstag fire was helpful. But Hitler was going to move towards a dictatorship, Reichstag fire or not. And he did. You know, by July, he banned every other political party. It was helpful. Um, whether, you know, whether the Nazis were involved you know, remains a matter of discussion. But the Nazis exploited it. And Hitler was good at that. You know, Hitler was a skillful politician who could exploit diplomatic situations and internal situations. He ran rings around people like Deladier and Ch- Chamberlain. Roger, it is fascinating to see how the European powers viewed him and also how the intelligence services viewed Hitler and the rise to power of the Nazis because, you know, Frank earlier mentioned the Nazi-Soviet pacts, but, you know, York shows how the Americans had discovered that this was being negotiated, but wait three months before they told the British and the French, which shows that, you know, at this stage, the Allied powers and their intelligence agencies weren't exchanging the information that they should have. Well, uh, that's a very interesting point. Um, I mean, generally, so many factors came into play which prevented or inhibited the degree to which from powers like Britain and France and other countries could actually closely watch and monitor Germany, let alone predict what it was going to do next. Um, the most obvious such barrier was, of course, lack of resources, um, by, for example, the British and French intelligence services, which were completely starved of of um, resources. And um, you also have to prioritise what's most important. I mean, you're confronted um, by Soviet um, communism. And um, <clears throat> in the wake of the First World War, obviously, that seemed a very real threat in the wake of, for example, the Invergordon riots in, um, in Scotland. Um, it, it seemed a very real risk. And at what point does Hitler seem more of a risk than than um, Soviet communism. These are uh, questions, very difficult questions to answer. And, and there wasn't the interplay between the governments which, which would have helped to, to do that. 
And there, there definitely seems to be a huge interest, though, in German rearmament, and that's something that's closely monitored throughout the 1920s and the 30s. Well, that's right. Um, German rearmament was obviously um, an area of huge concern. But of course, up until about 1934-35, I mean, it seemed that Hitler was staying within the ambits of the Versailles Treaty, um, and it wasn't necessarily um, a cause of alarm to foreign powers. Some people obviously thought it was, um, but, but they were probably in the minority view. Up until around about 1936-37, after most obviously the occupation of the Rhineland, but probably possibly for a lot of people even much later than that. Um, so German rearmament in itself didn't necessarily matter, although, of course, um, the sheer pace with which it was happening um, did alarm a lot of people. But the intentions behind it, of course, were, were, were quite different. Thing. A lot of people um, thought that Hitler had relatively benign um, intentions, um, relatively benign, um, by which I mean he had no intention, despite having proclaimed or written down in Mein Kampf what he wanted to do, um, of going outside Germans. German's traditional borders. So, um, although intelligence was pouring in sometimes from very dubious sources about um, the amount of uh, or the degree to which real was taking place in Germany, that in its own right didn't necessarily matter to foreign intelligence services. You have to make this judgment call about obviously what somebody would do with those um, resources. And it definitely seems that the French became increasingly panicked by what the Germans were doing. And, you know, one intelligence report was that they were suffering from blind defeatism. And there definitely seemed to be a, a huge panic and insecurity about what was happening, which in a way did completely undermine any kind of, of attempt to, to, to restrict what Hitler was doing. Uh, yes, the French were very alarmed. Though, of course, for the British, when we received these reports from Paris, it was very difficult to judge what was and wasn't genuine, by which I mean the degree to which some of those so-called intelligence reports were being fabricated or exaggerated for political ends, because the French were, some people within uh, the French government were wanting to exaggerate um, the German threat in order to build uh, an alliance with Britain. Um, and of course, um, this information came sexed up, to use the jargon from the 2003 invasion of Iraq, it came sexed up and highly skewed and politicised. Uh, and lost a, a certain amount of credibility in Whitehall as a result. Um, but the French were very alarmed, not just because of their, of their um, national security concerns, it was also because of things like economic jealousy. Um, the French, since 1870, had been concerned, obviously, about uh, being overshadowed by their larger neighbour um, and the rivalry between France and Germany in economic terms, as well as over things like prestige and where one stands, how great your own country is compared with this rapidly emerging country had been very real uh, concerns for the French, say, since 1870 and done things like spark real concerns about um, French demographics because demography was considered to be uh, a clear indication of, uh, of, a national, of national grandeur and national greatness. Um, but of course, uh, certainly uh, from, yeah, around about the mid-1930s, one detects a, a bit of a turning point. You see a new degree of alarm and concern in the reports of French intelligence officers um, who become more suspicious of Hitler and his intentions, as well as the resources he has at his disposal to realise the perceived threat that he seemed to pose. And Roger, do you think there was a sense that they underestimated Hitler, especially in the early years, or at what point did they realise this was someone who who was a monster, who who was going to keep on expanding, going to keep on posing a threat to the you know, peace in the world? Or uh, to what extent did they think that this was just some, 
you know, ridiculous figure who who they'd be able to manage and control? Um, it, it's very, very very difficult to judge because obviously we have so few documents in our possession um, with both the French and, and even also the British. Um, the information that I've seen and the documents that I've seen show that certainly up until 1930, September 1930, actually, I was thinking of the Reichstag elections of September 1930, um, Hitler was always considered, or, or looked down on rather. I mean, the documents I've seen, they refer to him as simply as the house painter from Vienna, a third-rate street demagogue, um, and um, he was looked down on uh, with a degree of contempt. September 1930, with the Reichstag elections, Hitler took nearly 20% of the vote, and his representation of the Reichstag uh, jumped from, I think it was 12 seats, um, to 107 from memory. Um, so there's a sudden drastic change, all of a sudden, um, this pretty obscure finesse called Farbrand from Bavaria seems um, a bit more than just that. In terms of the actual threat he posed, um, again, different departments and individuals within the various foreign ministry generally, but also within the intelligence services, um, differed significantly. Um, as indeed their counterparts did in London and elsewhere. So the occupation of the Rhine was, I'm sure, probably a turning point in both capitals, Paris and London. We are talking about Adolf Hitler and debating his rise and fall. We're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, I'll be speaking to Professor Devin Pendis from Boston College about the leadership style of Hitler and why the Holocaust happened. So stay with us here on News Talk. Welcome back. We're Talking History and tonight we're continuing our series on the history of the totalitarian dictators, looking at the rise and fall of Adolf Hitler. And I'm delighted to be joined now by Professor Devin Pendus, Professor of History at Boston College, an expert on modern German history. He's the author of Democracy, Nazi Trials and Transitional Justice in Germany. And he co-edited the collection Political Trials in Theory and History. Devin, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Could I begin by asking about the leadership style of Hitler? What was he like in terms of the way he imposed his will on the new state that he was bringing into being? So so Hitler had a very odd leadership style, I think you could safely say. He was basically a lazy man. He hated the sort of day-to-day work of governing. He did not like attending meetings. He was not one to read briefing papers. Right? He was a self-taught man. Uh, he had a very high opinion of his own sort of political instincts, and that had been sort of continually reinforced in his rise to power when you know he had kind of tended to make the right call at various junctures. And so you know, what he liked to do was sort of set general priorities. He had very strong ideas, but they were often not very detailed. And then he would let his subordinates kind of work out amongst themselves, often through kind of pretty serious uh, bureaucratic competition, how to make those ideas into reality. And then once the bureaucratic infighting had kind of worked itself out, he would swoop in, pick the winning idea and say, see, I was right all along. And Devon, I wonder, when you look at his rule, when you look at the way he was able to exert such control over the German people and over the society, was it uh, through the use of fear and violence? Was it because they were very successful with propaganda and indoctrination? But, you know, what were the levers that he was using to, to continue to exert such control? So the Nazis, you know, after they came to power in 1933, did use violence and terror, right? But it was... You know, in contrast to, say, what was going on in the Soviet Union, Nazi terror was actually quite focused. 
right? It was initially focused on destroying the German left. It then obviously came to be targeted at German Jews, right? Um, but for ordinary Germans who were neither communists nor Jewish, um, there wasn't much terror. Uh, not until sort of the late war years anyway. Um, and the regime was, in fact, deeply popular, right? I mean, you have to remember that it was the most uh, popular party in the German parliament before Hitler was appointed chancellor. It had broad and deep support. And the ways in which, you know, it was perceived at least to have solved the Great Depression early on through a policy of rearmament uh, gave it a lot of popular support among ordinary Germans as well. Um, and so part of the way that Hitler ruled was with the support of um, a large percentage of the German population. But again, that was complemented with terror. If you stepped out of line, if you actually did resist the regime or criticize it, right, the regime could be you know, quite ruthless in, in suppressing that. So uh, there was a kind of a, a carrot and a stick, as it were, right? Propaganda also played a really important role um, in highlighting the positive, quote-unquote, aspects of the regime, and then really creating this cult of personality around Hitler, because that's, you know, part of the way the regime worked was to say that everything that's good that's happening, everything you like, you have a job, you know, um, we're having foreign policy success, what, you know, we don't have disorder in the streets anymore— all of that stuff was attributed really directly to Hitler personally, right? And so people really, a lot of people, not everyone obviously, but a lot of people really did fall into this cult of personality around him. And you can see this in the post-war period when people say, oh, Nazism, you know, Hitler didn't know all the bad things. You know, the party was bad, the war was bad, but Hitler was good. And people will still be saying that in the 1950s. He seems to have been very successful in establishing these different groups to to ensure control. The Gestapo, when he had the SS, he got a, a handle on the military. He was able to, to remove the brown shirts in the Night of the Long Knives when there was a perceived threat to his authority and power. That There were all these different groups that he was able to use to, to further the, the mission of the Reich. Yes, that's right. I mean, you know, no no government, even one with a very strong cult of personality, operates, you know, without institutions, right? And one of the things that, that Hitler did very successfully was, on the one hand, co-opt existing institutions, right? The army is the most obvious example, but big business would be another one, in which he really in part because he was giving them what they wanted, right? The army wanted to rearm, the army wanted to do World War One, hope for a better result. So they were on board, in part because Hitler was giving them what they wanted. Same thing with big business, right? There's a lot of money to be made in rearming Germany. But along the way, he also then, you know, increasingly co-opted them ideologically, right? So they're not, the army is not only getting tanks and airplanes, but it's getting Nazified throughout that process. Parallel to this co-optation of existing institutions, existing elites, Hitler also created new institutions and new elites that were even more loyal to him and to his vision, right? The Gestapo and the police is kind of an interesting example where after Himmler is in charge, the police and the SS fuse. And so it's both an old institution, right? They've had police in Germany for a long time, but it gets melded with a new uh, ideological institution in terms of the SS to forge something that's really radically new, and which is you know, what, the, what Hitler calls the kind of soldiers of my worldview, right? 
who are really geared towards the ideological struggle. If the army is in charge of the military struggle, the SS and the police are in charge of the ideological struggle, right? And they they run on on sort of parallel tracks, right? It's not the I mean, they are to some degree rivals, but they really also are complementary in terms of both reinforcing Hitler's personal authority and German domination, especially, again, once the war starts in occupied territories, for example. How great an orator was Hitler, really? Because that seems to have been such a huge part of the image of Hitler and what we what we know about him and probably connected with the cult of personality as well. But I wonder, is it overstated or was it genuinely as powerful as, as, as people claimed? I think, you know, a lot of it depended on how receptive people were to the message they were hearing, right? So you, you can read, you know, diary accounts and you can read testimony after the war of people saying, you know, I saw him speak and I was moved to tears, right? Um, you know, obviously some of it's also just the time period. I mean, if we watch uh, a Hitler speech today, it seems, you know, ludicrous, right? It's, it's, it's become a, a joke meme almost, right? But a lot of people at the time found that histrionic style to be very appealing especially if they were already sympathetic to the message. There are, of course, a lot of people also at the time, mostly you know, critics and people on the left and whatever, who um, watch Hitler's speeches and say, I don't understand the appeal, right? I, he, he just seems like he's shouting incoherent nonsense. And so I think you know, the effectiveness of, of any orator, at least in part, I think, depends on how willing, uh, how predisposed people are to believe the message. If somebody's saying something that you want to hear anyway, you're going to say, my God, what a great speaker, right? And I, so I think he was an effective orator, but he was an effective orator because there was already a, a ready audience for um, his message. And in terms of his anti-Semitism, which was so deeply rooted into his psyche and his ideology, did it also help by having this enemy that he could mobilise Germans against? It was a way of, of uniting them in a common cause. And so it was, it was easy to scapegoat the Jews and blame them for, for things that had nothing to do with them. Absolutely. I mean, so for Hitler personally was, was literally obsessed with, the, with Jews and with the, the Jewish threat. Um, but his vision for Germany was also, you know, it was comprehensively racist, and, and he wanted to unify Germany. He felt like the, the aftermath of World War I and liberal democracy had been incredibly divisive for Germans. Um, he hated Marxism in part because he thought it was, you know, divided people by class. And so what he wanted to do was, you know, um, articulate this vision of and then try to create in reality a kind of a racially unified German people who would overcome class conflict, would overcome self-interested divisions, and positing the Jews as both as, a, you know, as an enemy and as really the creators of this division, right? I mean, he says, you know, Marxism is a Jewish plot to divide the German people. Um, you know, so the, the Jews are kind of doing double work in, in his uh, vision as, as kind of threats to everything that is good, and, to, and doing that really through fostering the, the very division that he hopes to overcome. And, you know, again, I think there's a long tradition of anti-Semitism in Germany. A lot of people find that vision really appealing. So it's both the threat 
end the alternative to the threat, which is, again, this kind of vision of what they call a people's community of, of a unified German people living in solidarity with one another. That's also part of the appeal. Why did the Holocaust happen? Because it was an insane, horrific genocide, but it seems even more insane to start it during the Second World War when there are so many other things that need your attention and it just seems to be uh, the madness taking over instead of any logical rationale and, or strategy about winning the war. Well, I mean, this is obviously a hotly contested among historians, but my own view is that you know, because the Jews were seen by the Nazis, by Hitler personally, but also by other leading Nazis, as really the primary threat, right? Um, the war uh, against the Soviet Union, the war against the United States, are also wars against Jews, right, in, in their mind. Um, and so, you know, killing Jews during the war is for the Nazis not a distraction from the war effort. It is the war effort, right? I mean, Hitler has this, this line where he says, before the war, if we had gassed 15,000 Jews uh, in the course of World War I, we would never have lost, right? And so he has this vision of Jews as being the kind of the motive force behind the Allied war effort. Um, and so if he can destroy the Jews, right, that's how he's going to win the war, right? It's, it's insane. Uh, it's, it's pathological. But it's, you know, if you inhabit that mind space, it makes a perverse kind of sense. And how much did the Germans know what was going on? And how much did, I suppose, regular Germans, how, were, how much were they aware of the horrors of the, of the Holocaust? Um, again, you know, sort of hotly debated, but by and large, I would say almost everybody knew something horrible was going on. Too much of it was too public for people to not really know anything. Um, you know, a lot of this was essentially an open secret. In particular, one of the things that, you know, I think very compelling evidence that a lot of, you know, almost everybody knew something is the way in which Nazi propaganda during the war said, we have to win, otherwise the Jews will take their revenge. Well, their revenge for what, right? That said, you know, I think ordinary Germans, it was very easy to, to kind of intentionally not know everything. So you absolutely knew the Jews were being deported to the East. You absolutely knew they were never coming back. You heard stories from you know, uh, soldiers home on leave saying, oh my God, you never believe what I saw out there. Um, but they may not have known the details of the gas chambers, for example, right? But again, a lot of that's because they didn't want to know. So I would say generalized knowledge that, that Jews were being killed in vast numbers, that there was an attempt to essentially eradicate Jews around Europe, that was very widespread. The details about you know the death camps and how the death camps worked and that kind of thing, that was probably uh, restricted to a somewhat narrower circle. And you've done brilliant work on the trials afterwards, the attempts to bring Nazis to justice and exploring just how complicated the story is in terms of even uh, who was prosecuted and how they were prosecuted, looking at West Germany and things done differently in East Germany. And, and in some ways, they were, they were stricter and tougher in East Germany. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of the things that I think is really fascinating about, about the post-war is that you know, East Germans and East German courts actually get a better sense of the systematic quality of Nazi injustice, right? They, they prosecute a lot more people, 
and they prosecute them for a, a sort of a wider range of systematic crimes, of course, they're, you know, they're East German communists. They're doing this in part uh, as a way of consolidating their rule. If you're going to say to people, look, we should have a communist dictatorship here, um, that's a more palatable uh, message if you think, and we're the ones who are actually pursuing justice for, for the Nazis, right? So you can be opposed to one dictatorship, the Nazis, while trying to help foster and create a new dictatorship, you know, that of the, the East German communists. So, so it's really a funny kind of way in which, you know, a regime that will you know, become quite unjust itself does a, a good job of pursuing justice for a previously tyrannical, authoritarian, murderous regime. Is there a certain amount of allied hypocrisy after the war in terms of who they decide is going to be prosecuted and executed and those who seem to get a clean bill of health afterwards? I remember recently reading about the Minister for Transport, Julius Dorpmuller, who was you know, seemed to me to be uh, a, a leading Nazi, had received the Golden Party badge. But afterwards, Eisenhower received a report that he, was a, he hadn't been a Nazi activist and he was put in charge of the railways and rebuilding them after the war. Now, he got cancer and died in 1945, but only for that he would have gone on to have played a, a leading role afterwards. Whereas, you know, even now more recently, you see people who might have been a typist or a secretary in a concentration camp and might have only been 18, 19, or 20 uh, attempts to prosecute them, whereas some of these major figures, cabinet ministers, uh, were just uh, uh, told that they weren't activists. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a complicated story, uh, what happens in, in sort of West Germany after the war. I would say there's, there's a couple of factors in play. First of all, it depends a lot of when in the post-war period you're looking. In, in you know, 45, 46, into 47, the Allies are still, you know, pretty vigorously pursuing denazification, uh, pretty vigorously pursuing trials for a wide range of, of people involved in, in Nazi crime. As the Cold War emerges, that starts to retreat. So some of it is just simply geopolitics. Uh, uh, as the rivalry with the Soviet Union heats up, they're like, well, we need, you know, our Germans to fight their Germans kind of, kind of logic. Some of it, though, is there are genuine practical issues, practical problems, right? You can't run a country without people who um, know how the levers of, of administration work. There you know, was a, a trend in the literature for a long time to say denazification was a complete failure. All it did was rehabilitate a bunch of Nazis. But I think after the experience of the American occupation in Iraq, where we kicked all of the Baathists out of power and the country kind of collapsed into insurrection. You know, people have reevaluated denazification a little bit and said, well, we probably couldn't have kicked all the Nazis out of power. That would have been the entire functional elite of the country. And so that balancing act of we need people to run the trains and we need to put people in jail for mass murder. And how do we how do we draw the line between those two was a genuine dilemma, I think, right? And then I think the final point um, that's, that's worth making is that there was a lot of sympathy for German claims that they themselves had been sort of victims in the war, right? Um, people very quickly started, you know, they saw the bombed out cities and they're like, oh my God, wow, we really kind of went over the top here. I don't have much sympathy for that position myself, but I think, you know, 
by the 1950s, there was a lot of people in the West, in the United States, in Britain, maybe not so much in France, where they were like, yeah, no, the Germans did kind of, you know, they'd been punished already. We don't need to keep this up. And so I think there was a kind of a reflected ideological sympathy that came around. And do you think there was a sense after the war of people felt that a collective madness had been lifted from them and that uh, they wondered why on earth they had been swept away uh, by, by this uh, uh, Third Reich? Or do you think some were embarrassed and, or some were perhaps secretly still sympathetic? I think there's a lot of bad faith arguing that goes on on the German side after the war where... Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of them would say, oh, my God, it was kind of a collective madness. You know, I don't think that's actually right. I think the Nazis appealed to a lot of Germans uh, because a lot of Germans were broadly sympathetic with the baseline message that the Nazis were conveying, right? They they thought, yeah, the Jews really are a problem. Yeah, you know, we really do want military conquest in Eastern Europe, right? And and that was the side of things that, that people denied. After the war, they all said, I didn't know, I wasn't a Nazi, or if I was a Nazi, I wasn't really a Nazi. And most of that arguing, I think, was done in, relatively speaking, bad faith. That said, I do also think, you know, you have to recognize the remarkable fact that West Germany, you know, after 1945, pretty quickly emerges as a really high-functioning liberal democracy, with, you know, decent protections for civil and political rights, with, uh, you know, a lot of free and fair multi-party elections, um, uh, prosperity. So, you know, that is a kind of a remarkable transformation. And again, I think after the experience of the late 20th century, states coming out of authoritarian rule that don't do so well, uh, it makes it look all the more remarkable. And so I think that is you know, kind of um, another important part of the story. You can say, look, there was a restoration of Nazis. A lot of people who should have been in jail got off. Uh, A lot of Germans lied to themselves as much as anything about what they had done during the Third Reich. Okay, well, my thanks, Professor Devin Pendus, for joining me tonight to talk about the leadership of Hitler and the horrors of the Holocaust. Professor Devin Pendus, Professor of History at Boston College and an expert on modern German history. We're going to take another quick break, but when we come back, I'll be rejoined by Professor Frank McDonough and we'll explore why the war went so badly for Hitler as well as Hitler's legacy. So stay with us here on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we debate the rise and fall of Adolf Hitler. I'm joined by Professor Frank McDonough, internationally renowned expert on the Third Reich, uh, former professor of international history at Liverpool John Moores University and the author of two superb acclaimed volumes called The Hitler Years. Frank, what would you see as the turning point in the Second World War and when did it all start to go so wrong for Hitler? I take the position that the real turning point of the Second World War happens in 1940 when Hitler fails to win the Battle of Britain. And that means that Britain is not going to be invaded. And that means Britain can act as an aircraft carrier for a later invasion of Western Europe, spearheaded by the Americans. So that's the real turning point. These are some of the boys who've already blunted Hitler's air offensive. In due course, they'll stop it altogether. They take it easy between raids, and there's always plenty of sport to be had when there's no serious work to be done in the sky. When the alarm does come, not a second is lost. Blue section, I 
While the public takes shelter, our fighter pilots take off to destroy the enemy. So I say in my book that it all starts going wrong in 1940, and then it goes spectacularly wrong in 1941. Because if Hitler is going to win the war against the Soviet Union, he needs to take Moscow. And in December 1941, the Russians launch a counteroffensive under Marshal Zhukov outside Moscow, which sends the the Germans back 60 miles and makes sure that Moscow remains in Russian hands and Stalin remains there. And that's the real turning point. And then the next big turning point is the, the entry of America into the war, uh, which comes about because of Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor. And then Hitler is facing really Armageddon, really. He's got now the strongest navy in the world against him. He's got the strongest economic power against him. And he's got the strongest holder of, of, of people who are willing to sort of fight to the death, the Red Army. Millions of them. They lose, the Soviet Union loses 27 million. The famous quote is that in the Second World War, America gave the money, Churchill gave the passionate speeches, and the Russia gave the blood. And that's largely true. And Frank, how much do you think he was personally to blame for some of the military defeats and the strategic mistakes? Was he micromanaging it too much and believed that his vision was better than that of any of his generals? Well, in my book, which of course draws on all of the German documents, all of his military meetings, the British documents, the American documents, you know, the the Russian documents, what I find fascinating is the, the kind of military meetings that he has. Uh, which were all recorded, so they were by a stenographer. So we've got those. Now, at the Nuremberg trials, all of the leading generals on trial made out that Hitler made all the disastrous decisions. And if Hitler had listened to them, then Germany could have won the war. That's what they said. But if you actually look at the documents of the meetings of the of the military leaders every day, what you find out is that it wasn't Hitler who made all the key decisions. Many of them were ideas put forward by his generals. Um, the classic example is von Manstein. He puts forward during the Battle of France the famous um, attack through the Ardennes. That comes from the German military, not from Hitler, and Hitler backs it. Equally, in the, in the attack on the Soviet Union, the plans are actually drawn up by the military high command, and Hitler endorses them. Most of the major battle plans are also drawn up by the by the military as well. The defence against the D-Day landing is drawn up by Rommel, not by Hitler, and it proves disastrous. So really, what you find is that you know the documents can show you that it isn't all Hitler's fault. Many of the faults lay with the generals themselves, who tried to cover that up because Hitler was dead by saying, oh, he made all the bad decisions. We tried to uh, stop him. We t- all he did was rant and rave all the time. And even in the, in, in the documents themselves, you don't hear Hitler, you know, shouting and screaming or, or even saying sentences that are very angry in those documents. You find that a lot of the documents confirm the view that it was a collective decision. 
And of course, the most famous uh, clip is is from the movie Downfall, which shows Hitler getting increasingly yeah. angry and it's much parodied and so many different variations yeah. of it whenever something happens. So is there a sense that that's how things went in those final in those final months uh, with his own side, maybe losing faith in him? Or again, is that uh, an after the fact attempt to try and uh, put all the blame onto Hitler and all the responsibility onto him? Well, the downfall clip is a good one because it shows that, that in that instance, it was um, uh, a guy who was supposed to come and relieve Berlin and, and the actual um, enterprise hadn't even begun. So that's why he goes mad. But it shows you that they were lying to him. Albert Speer, he was told to operate the Nero Order, which was destroy all the industry in the Ruhr and Western Europe to prevent it falling into allied hands and Albert Speer admits towards the end that he didn't implement that order. So he was being lied to by his generals as well. You know, they were they they only were feeding him impartial information. So again, they bear the responsibility for that. So what about his death then on the 30th of April, 1945? Uh, he shot himself in the head. Eva Braun, who he'd just married a few days before, uh, took a cyanide capsule. I think the, the bodies were, were destroyed then. Like immediately, um, a whole mythology sprung up about whether he had escaped and whether he was still alive somewhere in South America or something. And it, it was very much something that supporters of Hitler clung to in the decades ahead. The evidence for Hitler escaping is is zero, uh, and all these sorts of sightings of him are just kind of CIA reports. Um, you know, a little bit like Elvis is still alive, really. Nobody ever took them seriously. Uh, there were so many eyewitnesses in the bunker who witnessed um, Hitler's death that we can rule out that he escaped from the bunker. Um, and the bodies were not completely destroyed. They were captured by the Soviets. They got his, 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 his head and his jawbone intact. And they were able to link, they, through his dentist, they were able to link his jawbone with, with Hitler's dental records because Hitler had a very strange dental bridge in the bottom of his teeth. And there's an x-ray that was taken in uh, 1944, which links closely with... Um, the Soviet uh, jaw, they, they extracted his jaw, which was then looked at by his dentist. Also, the authorities in Bavaria undertook a four-year investigation into how Hitler died. Four years, every single person was looked at in that four years. All the forensic evidence was looked at. All of the dental records were looked at. So there was no doubt that the person who was found in the in the uh, garden of the Reich Chancellor was Hitler, and also they found Ava Brown as well. And that concluded in 1956. So it wasn't until 1956 that he was definitely declared dead through that. But before that, you know, you Trevor Roper, who was a, a British a soldier and an historian. He was given the task of writing a very detailed report. It became a book called The Last Days of Hitler. And again, he looks at all of the the eyewitness evidence. So based on the eyewitness evidence, the surviving evidence, then it's a myth that Hitler ever escaped. 
Hitler had dreamed of making Germany a superpower and having this thousand year Reich and instead it all ended in ruins in 1945 and also uh, having leaving the country not only broken but having to deal with the horrors of the, the Holocaust and the legacy of the Holocaust and the, the shame and the and everything that was to to be left with that the, the, the sheer magnitude of that something that the country still deals with and will probably never uh, erase so uh, it's a very different uh, it's a di- very different Germany that he leaves behind oh yes it's a devastated Germany I mean Germany's defeat is spectacular you know the Russians invade from the east the allies invade from the west Germany is occupied. It's split into uh, four pieces in occupied zones. You know, there's the American zone, there's the British zone, the French zone, and the Soviet zone. Berlin is divided in two, East and West Germany. Two different types of regime emerge. West Germany, a democratic country, about you know, seventy percent of the of the territory is West Germany, and then there's the communist dictatorship of East Germany. And then later on, of course, Germany does reunite. But as you said, Germans have to carry the weight of this terrible burden of the Holocaust as well. And anti-Semitism was at the core of of Hitler. You know, he, he believed that Germany would only remain a great power if they could destroy the Jews. He saw the Jews as the enemy, the enemy of all national governments, he felt they were, because he said they didn't have a a country of their own. Of course, they did after the war through Israel. But he said that unless he destroyed uh, Judaism, then uh, Germany could not be a united country. And it always had to, after fear being undermined by this kind of Jewish world conspiracy. And why do you think there are so many admirers for Hitler today and, and, and in the decades since the death, people who who admire his leadership style, who who seem to be still enthralled to 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 his magnetism, who uh, read Mein Kampf, who want to visit the Wolf's Lair and the different sites associated with Hitler, who name their dog after Hitler's dog. Like they're they're definitely people don't seem to see through the you know the disaster and, and how much of a kind of a con man or mafia leader he kind of was and uh, the destruction and disaster that he brought on Germany and the devastation he brought to millions of lives that why do you think there is that attraction there for some people? Well, I wouldn't say it was a minority sport. I'd say that, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a minority sport and anyone who'd lived under Hitler's rule, especially in, in Eastern Europe, would not look back with any favour on the brutality of Hitler's regime and his brutal SS and Gestapo. And Hitler exists, you know, as a historical figure to be examined by people like me, serious historians, or to be a kind of cultural figure to be ridiculed or made fun of. You know, we all know the producers, don't we? The famous um, Mel Brooks film, you know, where he's depicted as like a, a hippie. Um, he's kind of divorced, really, from the reality of what was going on at the time. And, of course, you know, people will latch on to some of the things they said, as, you know, maybe he was talking about what was going on today. Um, I think in Eastern Europe, you know, this kind of Hitler cult is strong. Even in Germany, in East Germany, you know, the AFD, um, you know, looks favourably on some of Hitler's policies. We see it today. 
sort of a, a kind of what you call about a normalization of Hitler. You know, the more the right wing can normalize Hitler and look at sort of his good points as they see it, then the, you know, the more the Nazi message can get through. Um, you know, the more that idea can, can have some weight. And Frank, what would you see as the legacy of Hitler then? It's a, we've discussed, I suppose, some of it and the Holocaust must stand as, as one of the most uh, horrific parts of the legacy. But it's a wide legacy in terms of how people view the totalitarian dictators of the 20th century and uh, the lessons that are always seemingly drawn from it in terms of how a society can be corrupted and how an evil can be allowed to just take over. I think there's become a kind of relativism amongst the dictators um, by saying, oh, you know, Hitler wasn't the worst dictator. Stalin was much worse. Oh, and what about Chairman Mao? Look at all the millions that he was responsible for, for killing. Oh, and look at Pol Pot. You know, per capita, maybe he was the most genocidal dictator of all. So it's become kind of relativized. And Hitler in that kind of dictator sort of Premier League. Hitler comes lower down now as the most brutal. But I think his destruction of the Jews, the way he went about it, trying to destroy a whole race of people, you know, off the face of the earth, you know, even these other dictators, Stalin and Mao and Pol Pot, they they were trying to destroy political enemies. But Hitler was trying to destroy people just for being Jewish. So I think we should keep affront the horror of Hitler's Germany. Thanks Frank, I think that's a very powerful message on which to end our discussion tonight. My thanks to Professor Frank McDonough, internationally renowned expert on the Third Reich and author of those acclaimed two volumes The Hitler Years and his new book The Weimar Years, in a way the prequel will be published this August. We also were joined earlier by Orty Howard Roger Howard, whose new book Spying on the Reich, The Cold War Against Hitler has just been published by Oxford University Press and we also spoke to Professor Devin Pendus, Professor of History at Boston College and the author of Democracy, Nazi Trials and Transitional Justice in Germany. And that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, to Shannon Murphy and Simon Keane on research and to Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been Talking History. Good night.